All right, we want to come back now to 2 Thessalonians and move into chapter 3. We've been working through this epistle, and I trust it's been an encouragement to us. One of the things that we've noticed is the focus on the Lord's return and a correction that was necessary because of some false teaching and misrepresentation of Paul's uh, analysis to them that was sent by others that claimed to be from Paul. And so Paul's done some corrective teaching there in chapter 2, trying to remind them, no, we're not in the day of the Lord yet. We're not in the tribulation yet. We're not in the kingdom yet. And you recall we looked at the other night, there was that problem that came up later in Ephesus where those two uh, men in the church, I started to call them brothers, but I'm not sure if they were. Paul doesn't call them that, but Hymenaeus and Philetus, I think they were. You know, they were teaching that the resurrection is already passed. So uh, it's very important to keep focused on the, the accurate teaching, the accurate handling of the Word of God. And just because someone comes in here and claims to be a Christian and claims to be someone who understands the Scriptures, that doesn't mean it's so. We always want to be a Berean like we started at the beginning, right? We want to be Bereans who search the Scriptures to see if the things that are being taught are so. Therefore, when you come to Bible study, when you come to meetings, you come with a Bible, your own Bible that you're familiar with, that you're marking up, and that you're following along in the passage. And that's one of the reasons why I so much appreciate teaching the Word with just the Bible and no videos. You know, no overheads. No, uh, when we're, it's certainly helpful in giving a presentation like Brother Jim just gave. But when we're talking about teaching the Word, I want your eyes on your Bible. Because that's what you're going to need to share with someone else on the street. It's not going to help to remember, well, I know the verse is somewhere up here on the wall, but I don't know where it is in my Bible, right? So it's so important that we be familiar with our Bibles. And especially in the day that we are living in now. It's unbelievable the things that are coming out. So Paul then moves into chapter 3. We've seen then that he dealt with the parousia of the Lord in chapter 2 and the parousia of the lawless one, the Antichrist. And then he had those words of encouragement at the end of chapter 2 we looked at this morning in verses 13 to 17. But now he moves into chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. So now he's come full circle. He's prayed for them. He's mentioned in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, verse 13, that he feels an obligation before God to be interceding for them. And we applied that to ourselves, that we too have an obligation to intercede for one another. To be giving thanks just for the fact that, that you're saved. That you're part of the family of God and that you have a participation in the work. And he's going to urge them here in chapter 3 to participate now in the work. Be involved. Be busy in the work. The Lord hasn't come back yet. There's still work to be done. And that's something that still needs to be taught today. So finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. He commended them in the first chapter of the first letter of the fact that when they heard the word of the Lord, they believed it was God's word. And in chapter 2 of that uh, first letter, he says in verse 13, We also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you 
who believe. Now, of course, we saw earlier this morning that that, that conviction worked that sanctification of the Spirit, that convincing work that this Word is the Word of God, that this message is a message from God, comes from God, His Spirit working in our spirits and in our hearts, right? We get that affirmation. He affirms it to us. But He says, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. And there are various ways that we can pray that way now. The school ministries program, the word of the Lord is going forward. The word of the Lord is going forward in a lot of other venues and a lot of other opportunities. And the Lord will guide each one of us to where he wants us to be if we're yielded to him, if we're surrendered to him. But we all ought to be somewhere involved in advancing the word of the Lord, the message. That's part of the reason why we're still here. That's why he's left us here. And part of the reason why he hasn't come back yet. There are more people that need to hear it, see. So he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. How is the word of the Lord glorified? When believers are edified and when the lost are converted, the word of the Lord is glorified, isn't it? The word of the Lord demonstrates its power. In effectually working in believers and effectually working in unbelievers to bring them to Christ. And that's a miracle work of God. It brings glory to God. It brings glory to Christ. And it's a privilege to be involved in it, isn't it? When we begin to get the step back and get the perspective and, and see what God is doing in this world through, through the eyes of the Lord. And he invites us to participate with him. And you don't, you don't have to, the young people say, well, when I'm 25, or when I'm 30, or when I'm 35. No, don't wait. I remember Brother Owen Hoffman years ago, up in Washington, Georgia. Testimony that is no more, unfortunately. But years ago, a work that he began there, and, and one of the brothers was saying, well, Owen, he said, when I, when I get a little older, I'll get, I'll get involved in the work at camp and some of the other things that are going on. I just, I just want to wait till I get it. And Owen often said, you see that couple over there? 20 years ago, that's what they said. And they never did do it. And they're still not. You see that couple over there? They said, well, we'll wait until we... See, when we, when we quench the Holy Spirit and His desire to work through us, He's, he's like a dove, right? He's gentle. He leads you alone. And then who loses? Well, we lose and God loses. So it doesn't matter what your age is. There's a work that can be done. The key is availability, right? Being available for the Lord and he says in verse 2, And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Well, that's a message that fits in this book, doesn't it? Because in chapter 2, it was unreasonable and wicked men that were misleading them about the return of the Lord and getting them rattled about the fact that, that well, they missed the rapture and they're already going to be in the tribulation period and they need to be looking for Antichrist. See, unreasonable and wicked men. 
And when Satan is working, this is the kind of people that he works through. And if you are being effective as a servant of the Lord, these are the kind of people Satan will bring into your midst, too. We were talking about that with soccer last Monday night, right? We know we're, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know that if we're being effective for the Lord, that the evil one's going to be sowing tares among the wheat. We know he's going to be going in to agitate and to confuse. So Paul says, pray that we may be delivered from that. Because not everybody has faith. But the Lord is faithful. See? That's, that's the source and root and strength of our prayers and why we do pray. Not every man, not every woman has faith, but the Lord is faithful. You see what he's doing. He's making a, a link there to that word. Who will establish you and guard you from who? The evil one. See, see they were all worried that the evil one was going to get them. And he is encouraging them. He is consoling them. He's saying, look, the Lord is faithful. He said he would come for you. And he is going to come for you. He said that because he has saved you and me, we've been delivered from the coming wrath. That's at the end of chapter 1 of the first letter, right? And we've not been appointed to wrath. Chapter 5, verse 9 in the first letter. But unto salvation. So be at peace, he says. Don't be concerned about that. Be involved in advancing the word of the Lord. Be involved in the work, he says. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. So he's already urged them to remember the traditions, that they, the apostolic traditions that were passed down to them. He says in, in the end of chapter 2 there in verse 15, traditions that were passed on orally and by letter. But the apostolic ones are the ones that are authoritative, right? The word of God, the New Testament, written by the apostles, called the Apostles' Doctrine in Acts 2 verse 42. He says, those are the things that you need to be busy about. We have confidence in the Lord that you will do the things we've commanded you. And then he closes out that first section with regard to his confidence. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. What a prayer. See, what he's praying for is the, the inner life. The, what the, the Keswick people used to call, you know, that, that inner spiritual life that Walk with the Lord. And, and to cultivate this, it will not happen automatically. So this is a matter of personal discipleship. This is a matter that you have to have a strategy. You have to have a plan on how you're going to do this. You have to look ahead to the days and weeks and months ahead and figure where you want to be spiritually and have a plan for how you get there. Now, the Lord may alter it here and there and tweak it different ways, but man plans his ways and the Lord orders his steps. Right? Proverbs 16. And so you have to have a plan. I can remember years ago, I'll just use myself as an example because I don't want to embarrass anyone here. 
But years ago, in the early 90s, when the Lord began to really work in my heart about this very issue of growing in the love of God and the patience of Christ and entering more into the Christian life I'd been called to, he put a desire into my heart to get together with him in the morning. I remember back in the high school days when I really wanted to be alert and studying for a test that I did better studying early in the morning than I did the night before. If I studied the night before, I'd forget by the next morning a lot of the things. So I got up early in the morning. I thought I would do that for a test in history or science. Why shouldn't I do that for the Lord and the Word of God and a testimony for Him? That was already in my mid-30s, and He began to convict me of that. And so I started getting up. And for me, getting up at 6.30, at that time, I'm not automatically a morning person. At that time, that was difficult, 6.30. But it wasn't within a few weeks the Lord working in my heart and showing me things in the scriptures and drawing me with the love of God that I started getting up at 3 o'clock. And from 3 to 7, four hours went by like this. And I, and I had to pull myself away from the scriptures to go to work. And that went on for seven years, every day, for seven years straight. And then ministry began to take me too late. And of course, I was having to go to bed early. To do that, ministry began to keep me too late at night, and so that began to shift. But still that four hours for the Lord is still kept as much as the ministry allows. And it's, it's what we need to do. Now, not all of us are called the same way. Not all of us are called in the same direction. All I'm pointing out to you is that there, is, there has to be a plan. There has to be a strategy. You know, we talk about the, the three parts of spiritual life and growth, right? Brokenness, surrender, fruitfulness. That's how it works. Brokenness, that means confession, contrition. The Lord delights in those who have a broken and contrite spirit, right? He looks for people like that. Now you say, well, that's, I thought that was how y'all came to Christ in conversion. Well, that's true. But then your Christian life and growth, you continue with brokenness in various compartments of your life because even though you said, well, I surrendered it all to the Lord when I was saved, you didn't really surrender it all. And I didn't either. We didn't understand that there were various compartments of our lives that, that self was in dominion and on the throne and self wasn't going to give up easily. And so we begin to recognize as we grow as Christians that there are areas of our lives that need more brokenness. And the Lord uses circumstances. He uses people. But his primary tool he wants to use, if we'll let him, is his word. It's like a hammer, it says in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, right? To break down, but then he always builds up, too. The goal is not brokenness. Brokenness is just the entry. The goal is fruitfulness, and the brokenness then leads to surrender, yielding, realizing that I can't, but you can, Lord, and I want you to through me, Lord. That's where that surrender, and we'll be surrender another compartment of our lives. There may be another hundred compartments before we really get to the level of surrender we want to get to. Our personalities are complex. But that's part of spiritual growth, beloved. It's part of basic discipleship. 
And we find oftentimes that mutual accountability, having an accountability partner that, that can encourage us, that can be there for us as we work through it. When we fail, they're there for us. When they fail, we're there for them. That, that can be a real help in that area. And then the third component is fruitfulness, right? Those who demonstrate that brokenness, authentic brokenness, and surrender to the Lord will be made fruitful. They will bear fruit for the Lord. The Lord promises that. And I think that's what Paul's referring to here. He says, so in verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. They knew the love of God. They're believers. He's wanting them to be increasingly directed greater ways into the love of God. God's love for them, their love for God. There's probably both aspects of that particular clause in there. God's love for them, understanding how much God loves you and me, draws out a greater love, hopefully, responsive love back to him. Where is he going to primarily do that again? In the scriptures, in the word of God. You see that time with the Lord is so important. It's got to be worked in. And don't tell me, I've heard people say, yeah, brother, but, but I'm busy. You're not any busier than I am. You know, this idea of getting on a, a high horse and say, yeah, but you don't know how busy I am. You don't know how important. You're not any more important than anybody else. Get out of your self-importance. Humble yourself, right? And the Lord will lift you up. None of us is that important. God's important. Christ is important. And we're his servants. And we're all servants on the same level. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we need to realize that. So blaming and making excuses. Hey, I've heard probably a lot of them. Maybe, maybe most of them. And I've developed a lot of them myself over the years. Let's, let's be authentic. And, and, and set aside that kind of game with God. That sort of mind game and be real with them. And be real with one another. You know, there, there's probably a few people in this room, and I don't know anybody, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but there, in a group this size, there's probably a few of us that are drifting from the Lord right now. And I don't know if the other people sitting around you know that. And I don't know if the people in your family know that. But God knows that. And God is faithful. And if you'll surrender to him, he'll direct you back into the love of God and restore you and make you useful again. If you'll let him, if you'll surrender to him, see, if you'll admit in a broken condition that you failed him. And you failed a lot of others, too, and you failed the church. That that is a refreshing. That's a releasing admission to make. Right. To admit those things. The love of God and, of course, the patient endurance of Christ. Look at how patient and enduring he was through his entire ministry. We heard from some of that this morning at the Lord's Supper. But especially in those last hours and days before the cross, patiently enduring. And whatever afflictions and trials and difficult circumstances and difficult people that the Lord brings in our pathway, 
He's able to direct us into the patience of Christ. But you've got to spend time with Christ to experience it, see? You've got to be with him. Well, that's the verses 1 through 5. I've called that Paul's confidence in the Lord. It's an encouragement. He's told them that he has confidence in them, that they're going to continue to yield and continue to grow and continue to participate in the work. Christians are busy in the work. He said at the end of chapter 2. But now in beginning of verse 6, down through verse 15, there's some correction of the saints here. And this is very instructive and informative too. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He pulls the full authority of the Lord's name here. The command from the apostle, it was enough that it's an apostolic command, but he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. That's an apostolic command. It's in the name and authority and person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's a very difficult thing to do. You notice the person is not an outsider. It's every brother who walks disorderly. Now he's going to explain what that disorderly walk is here in this section. I'll give you just a preview. But the idea is apparently there were some of the Thessalonian believers who had come upon hard times economically maybe lost their job or lost their position in a particular slave relationship they had with some owner or master. And we read in the first epistle in chapter 4 that those who exhibited brotherly love, beginning in verse 9, were taking care of them because that's what brotherly love does. But the problem was that those that were being taken care of liked it. They liked being taken care of by others and began to expect it. So he says there that you also, this is verse 11 of, of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and may lack nothing. Well, a few weeks, maybe a few months had transpired between that first letter and now the second letter, and apparently that problem was persisting. And how Paul knew that, we don't know. Maybe Timothy brought it in the report. Maybe one of the other brethren in Thessalonica had told Paul. But Paul now is using a very strong command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's saying, if there are brethren like that amongst you, withdraw from them. And hopefully it's just a temporary withdrawal. Because the goal is by withdrawing from them that you shame them into doing the right thing. So you don't associate with them. You don't invite them to meals for a while. And, and, and you give them time for the Lord to work in their hearts and convict them of this, see? So he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Now he's going to remind them, as he did in chapter 2 of the first letter, of his own example, which served as a pattern to them. As a pioneer missionary, he went in there 
and was self-supported. He supported himself, did not receive support from the group where he was ministering because he didn't want them to think they had to pay for the gospel. All right? And that's still true in pioneer missionary work. If we're working in a pioneer, that is, we're blazing a trail in a new area. We don't expect where you're planting a new church that the people there support the work. We hope that others will support the work and send that particular mission or missionary into that area to support the work. See? It's very logical and very practical. And, and Paul reminds them. He says, you know how you ought to follow us in this. This is what we did. He will say that, that I, as an apostle, he said, I had authority to expect support from you, from you Thessalonians. He'll say that again in, to the Corinthians, won't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not an apostle? Don't I have rights as an apostle? But he said, I chose not to force those rights upon you because he knew they had, the Corinthians at least were idolaters, they had a problem with covetousness, and they were, it was hard for them to let go of their money. And so he says, we won't take it from you, even though we have a right to take it. And that was in a way to shame them too, wasn't it? Later on, he would urge them in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about their offering for Jerusalem and how they were holding back. They said they'd do it. And he'd already boasted about them to the other churches, and now they weren't coming through. They weren't doing it, see. You see how the Apostle Paul and the gospel deals with very practical matters in our lives? You can't get any more practical than this. The whole matter of support for one another, meeting one another's needs, but not being an unnecessary burden on the brethren. And there's always people that will want to take advantage of that. So he says, nor did we, verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You invite us to a meal and we wouldn't even eat it. We'll bring our own food. <laughs> now this is important, I think, in pioneer missionary work, but to me, to an established work, if someone has to do this, I think that's a sad thing. It's a sad commentary on the, the brethren if they haven't grown in this kind of generosity and sharing. But in pioneer missionary work, this is what Paul's method consistently was. Now, did Paul receive gifts from local brethren? He sure did. Philippians talks about it, right? And in the Thessalonians, too, these very believers were very generous. He gives them credit for it. But he says, in this case, we didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge. We weren't going to allow you to think that you were buying the gospel from us. It's so important to protect that the gospel is free of charge as we share it. See, that's what he's saying, and we still want that to be true. Not because we do not have authority, he says in verse 9, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. See, the great principle is those who are older and more experienced in the Lord need to be examples to those who are younger in every realm of life. That's part of how discipleship works. The younger ones look at the older ones, see how we're doing, 
and hopefully desire to imitate it in some kind of a way if there's faithfulness there, if there's consistency. And so Paul says to them, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And that was a standing principle. Some wonder if that was something that was uh, uh, a, a, a phrase or a statement that was common in the first century, or it was a Hebraistic phrase that Paul got from the rabbis. We don't know. But it's been a principle that has carried down through the years in the church. Now, that's one of the things that it's very practical in how this works out. But we've had in... In certain churches that I go to, in Louisiana, I know, and other places, we've had people come in off the street that have physical needs. Food, sometimes clothing, sometimes diapers, if they're women with young children and so forth. Sometimes a need for shelter. And we always need to have a plan for how we're going to meet that need as a local church. Now, sometimes the groups are too small to have a soup kitchen or to keep a group a, a closet full of clothes or something in the back and so we support a local mission where we can send them that will provide those things for them but we need to have a plan to where to send them and what to do now sometimes what they what they want is just money and if they'll work for it I think we can give it to them. But I think the idea of just giving them the money, which is easier sometimes, just give them the money and let them go, the harder thing, but the more profitable thing for them is to teach them the lesson, this very principle here. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's the rule around here. See? And so you know, there's some things to be done around the building, or maybe he can go out and do some lawn work around the the chapel or do something else, anything that you can find for them to do just to show the principle that they are working and then eating, right? And so that takes some creativity sometimes. I know at one of the churches I was at in Houston, we had a particular area where we kept a, a folder of materials that when somebody came, that told them where the bus stop was, where they could get to the mission, told them where the mission was, told them who they needed to see, told them what was provided, had a tract in there. And maybe we had, you know, a couple of $20 bills thrown in there too sometimes. You know, that's up to the guidance of the Lord at a particular moment and what's available. But we, want to be, we don't want to just fund a drug habit. We don't want to just fund a dependence on booze. And that's oftentimes what we found in, in Louisiana and other places, what they want the money for. And so sometimes one of the brothers will take them to a restaurant or take them to a place to get where they could get food and buy it for them there. And that way, rather than just give them the money, which again would be easier, but to, to do that extra step. Why? For who? For the Lord. And make sure that person knows that the Lord is the reason why you're doing it. Now, we're not recommending that the sisters put their lives in danger to do this, obviously. I hope you brethren understand that. There has to be some protection in this kind of a thing. There has to be some reasonableness. But, but it, it's a very practical lesson, isn't it? It's so important. And the reason is because our old nature is prone to be lazy. 
It's just prone to be lazy. And different ones of us, different personality types struggle with that in different ways. But Paul came to the place he talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, I don't let my body tell me what to do. I tell my body what to do by the Spirit, by the Spirit of the Lord, right? I don't have to be dominated by what my body needs and what the appetites of the body are anymore. I'm a Christian. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit now. I can tell it no <laughs> now and then. And Paul did that, and he was a great example that way. And then he moves into verse 11. Here's the problem area, why he brought up the every brother in verse 6. For we hear, verse 11, that there are some, so there are some in the meeting there, who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Now he keeps using this disorderly, but it's the idea they're not willing to work. They're slackers. They're just, they're just wanting to sponge off the meeting. And, and yeah, they'll do this, they'll do that, and they'll claim this, they'll claim that. But really, they're not doing the work. And so he says, we hear there are some who, among you who walk in, and not working at all, but are busybodies. And that's always the case when people aren't involved in work and don't have discipline in their lives. They want to stick their nose in everybody else's life, right? They want to be God's policeman for you. They want to play Holy Spirit for you and for me, see. Busybodies, very dangerous, very destructive for a local church. Most of the local churches that probably have been destroyed or sidetracked over the history of the 2,000-year history of the church have been by these kind of people, busybodies. They, they just want to get in your business and tell you what to do and without knowing all the ramifications and all the different aspects and all the different circumstances. That's what he means about leading a quiet life and minding your own business. Now, don't take that to an extreme. You know, someone said, well, then, then I, don't, I don't want to know anything about your life. And don't tell me about your troubles and, and, and don't preoccupy my life with your burdens and all of that. No, there's, there's a balance here. Galatians 6 would help us with that, wouldn't it? Bear one another's burdens, right? And so fulfill the law of Christ. But we don't want to just be busybodies. In other words, we're not interested in getting gossip. We're not showing interest in somebody's life because we want to spread it as gossip. And this takes a lot of wisdom and discernment, particularly in the area of prayer requests. Because there are some prayer requests that we need to be careful how we word them. Especially to certain brethren, and you usually know who they are in a local meeting. You've got to be careful how you word them. Be more unspecific, a little general. And don't get too detailed and don't get into names, maybe, right? Because we know these people tend to, they're going to get on the phone and be with somebody later that night. And that's a dangerous thing, and it's, and it's so selfish and unchristlike un to do that. That's one of the vulnerabilities when we open up with one another, when we're mutually accountable, when we share with one another. We expose ourselves to that danger, don't we? That somebody might 
want to use the things that we share with them against us at some coming day. You say, would a Christian do that? I'm afraid so. So it's important to be wise, and it's important to be discerning. Now, those who are such, these busybodies, in verse 12, those who are such, we command, and now Paul's going to do it again. He's already given the command in the name of the Lord in verse 6, and he comes right back in verse 12 and repeats it. Those who are such, the busybodies who are walking disorderly in, in, among them, he says, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread and stop leeching upon the meeting. <laughs> is the idea, see. So this is very practical, isn't it? And, and there can be people that make a career out of this, traveling around. We hear about that, not so much in our churches, but I've heard it in, in uh, churches that, that we're affiliated with. Maybe I should say it like that. But I've heard it in, in some groups that this tends to be really a problem because they know that they can get in and it takes maybe six or eight months or a year before they get exposed and known if it's a large congregation and they can siphon off a lot in the process. So we, we need to be practical about this. We need to be concrete. But then in verse 13 he comes back, but as for you brethren, now the you here doesn't include the sum previously mentioned, right? He, now he's talking to the brethren who are walking in an orderly manner, who are leading quiet lives, who are serving the Lord. He says, but as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. When it comes to doing good, you're never going to fill up the measure of your calling. There's always more to do. And this is why we're calling this participation in the work. He's left us here. He hasn't come back yet. There's a mission. There's a, there's a course to complete. And each one of you who are born-again Christians has a ministry and a course assigned to you by the risen Christ. Each one of us. And each one of us will give account before him, face to face, eye to eye, before our Savior at the judgment seat of Christ for what we've done with what he's given us. And sometimes it gets difficult. And sometimes with all the aches and pains in our bodies and, and the difficulties in human relationships, we get weary. I didn't hear any amen, so I guess none of you are experiencing that. But, but uh, I, I've been there and I've been around brethren who just get weary. And they just, they're just groaning and tired. And, and that's a great opportunity for us to come along and refresh them, right? Take them somewhere, get their mind off of it, do something for them, mow their yard, do something for them, just give them something to encourage them, get their mind off of what they're weary about because we're going to be there someday ourselves, right? That's part of the fellowship. That's part of the body. But don't get weary in doing good. You'll say, 1 Corinthians 13 or 14, I think it is, when it comes to, to doing evil, it'd be like children. And children, you know, they don't, 
They're not preoccupied with evil. They don't think that way. They have to grow into that as they grow up. Be like that. But when it comes to doing good, be like adults. Be involved in it. Be thinking ahead. Be planning how different things you can do that are good things for people in the assembly and then in the community at large. And be creative. You know, there's no stereotypical thing here. We, we're not in the first century. We're not in the 10th century. You know, we're in the 21st century, and things are different, and the technology is different. There are different things available we can use to do that. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, now Paul's going to lay down a final warning here. Note that person and do not keep company with him. That kind of comes back to where he started earlier, right? Withdrawing from him. Don't keep company with him. Why? What's the goal? Notice. Restoration is the goal. That he may be ashamed. That he may come to contrition about this. And change, or she, change his or her way. Right? The goal of biblical discipline is always restoration. That's what pleases the Lord. That's what gives honor and glory to his name. We've only done half the work if we've done the discipline and then not done the restoration. We haven't completed what God assigned us to do. That's only half of it. We have a responsibility to see it through. And sometimes the harder part is that second half. That means follow-up. That means phone calls. That means visits, maybe. That means being inconvenienced ourselves at times for their benefit. Right? With the goal that they might be brought back. There's always that hope. And it's a blessed thing when we see that happen. What a victory it is for grace. Right? When we see that happen. And we rejoice and the angels rejoice with us. I, I remember talking to somebody recently and they were, they were admonishing someone that had been sharing the gospel with a person that was really down and out. You know, I mean, really in a bad way. And the brother said to him, well, I know the angels are rejoicing over his salvation. How come you're not? And, and we get so hardened sometimes and so occupied with just making it through the week that we forget what our mission is. We are representatives of the Lord Jesus. We are children of the king. We are princes and princesses. We are a holy people, a special treasure to the Lord, his own personal possession. Those are all statements that are in the Bible, in Deuteronomy and in 1 Peter, right? And we have a calling. We have a mission. We have a responsibility. And it's a privilege to participate in this work. Once we see it, for what it really is, what the, what the Bible teaches about it. And then Paul closes in the last few verses. I'm sorry, no, verse 15, just to close out that, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See, Even though he's walking disorderly, even though there's some lack of discipline in his life, you still treat him as a brother, 
And admonishing is the idea of instructing with the way of toward change behavior, right? The goal is change behavior when you admonish. But then he closes there in verses 16 to 18 with his prayer for the peace of God. You remember how the epistle started? They were suffering. They were agitated. They were suffering persecution from their own countrymen. There were difficulties. And there was, there was a total absence of peace, right? And then he says in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace, one of the great titles of our Lord Jesus, he's the Lord of shalom, he's the Lord of peace. And if we are children of the Lord of peace, what ought to be a, a primary characteristic in our lives? Anxiety or peace? Right? May the Lord of peace himself. Remember how he used that, that word himself in verse 16 of chapter 2. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It just brings up, it emphasizes the personal side of it. Himself, him personally. He says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. How often? Always. And in every way. That's his prayer for them. Now, all the way through here, he's not given them any instructions on how to get ready for the appearance of Antichrist. And in an epistle like this, where that's the primary subject that he's dealing with, to me, that is a significant omission. He doesn't say, and by the way, while you're trusting the Lord of peace, be anxious to make sure you're buying armaments, storing up ammo, getting food, water, finding a cave somewhere to hide from Antichrist. He's not telling me any of that. And yet our Lord in Matthew 24 tells the people of Israel, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation set up by Antichrist in the temple, head for the hills. Don't even go upstairs and get your coat. Don't waste a second. If you're out in the field, don't go back to the house. Keep going. Head for Petra. We don't see any of that kind of teaching to the church. I challenge you, show me where it is. I don't think you'll find it. He says to the church, the Lord of peace, may he always keep giving you peace. It's in the present continuous tense. May he keep giving you peace. And in the world we're living in today, this is nothing like what it's going to get as we get closer to the rapture, beloved. But already, look how agitated the people are around us. Look at how agitated Christians are around us. We hear about bombings here, and we hear about explosions there. We hear about nuclear threats here and nuclear threats there. We hear about diseases that are out of control. We hear about staph infections there's no cure for. We hear about the problems in schools. We hear about... Socially transmitted diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, all kinds of diseases that there's no cure for. Does that make you anxious? It shouldn't. If you don't know the Lord, it should. But if you know the Lord, the Lord of peace is there to give us peace. And he closes, the Lord be with you all. And then he gives this salutation. 
Here's my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Why would he do that? Remember back in verse 2 of chapter 2. They were these pseudo-writers that were claiming to be writing for Paul, sending letters and sending other kind of messages to the Thessalonians. I mean, to me, this is staggering. I would have thought the devil would have at least waited a few decades before he started doing this. Let Paul at least finish his course and get off the scene. Paul's still alive and they're doing this. And it will continue. It continued then. It continued every generation throughout the church age. There's nothing new under the sun. The evil in men's hearts is the same. So Paul says, this is an authentic letter from me. Here's what I, this is what my signature looks like. And I don't know whether it looked like chicken scratch or what, but it, it was the same every time. And so they could recognize it, see? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There it comes back full circle to where he began. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means unmerited favor. It means a favor from God that we do not deserve, never could deserve, never could earn. I hope you know that tonight. I hope as you're sitting there you can say with confidence, I know God has been favorable to me. And I know I have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. I know that. But if you don't know that, maybe you've heard a lot of things this week that we talked about Antichrist, and we talked about the day of the Lord and the day of Christ and the kingdom and all this, and, and it confuses you, all these different terminologies, the lawless one and the man of sin and the son of perdition. The thing you need to remember is this. God loves you. And he has sent his only begotten son to die for you. And that event occurred some 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Brother just played the song. At Calvary. A point in time. A historical event. The son of God died on a cross for you. And God validated that substitutionary sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And he will never see death again. Praise the Lord. And now we offer the message of salvation through faith in Christ to you. Are you trusting him tonight and him alone? If you haven't, the Bible says, Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to call on him. And if you call on him, the promise is he will save you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're a sinner, he came to save you. So please think about that. Where you're seated as you go home tonight, as you prepare for bed tonight. Your eternal destiny is at stake here. Now join me in prayer, will you? So, Father, we thank you 
We thank you for the message of the cross. We thank you for the person of the Lord Jesus who makes it all possible. We thank you, O Lord, that your love for us is authentic and real because you have demonstrated it. You've demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Lord. And if there's anyone here tonight who's not sure, who hasn't made that decision and called on the name of the Lord to save them, we pray you will work in their hearts and draw them to yourself with your cords of love. May they trust Christ tonight and not presume they're going to have time tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. If you're convincing them tonight, May they trust Christ and may they talk to one of us that we might help them, show them from the scriptures how they can be assured of their salvation. For those of us who are believers here tonight, we've been admonished by the the apostle that there's much work to be done, that Christians are busy people, that people that are in ministry are people that are busy serving, and there's a lot of work to be done. We pray, O oh Lord, that that inner life that you've written about here too, the love of God and the patience of Christ might be something that each one of us is growing into in a deeper walk, deeper relationship with you. There's nothing like it in the entire universe. Thank you for Brother Jim being here with us tonight. Thank you for this explanation we've seen on the school ministries. And we pray, Lord, if it's your will to guide some of those here to be involved in the ministry in the local schools in this region, that you would guide them and bless our brother as he travels and continues to take the work of that ministry in other ways around. And we thank you, O Lord, that you are faithful, that we can trust you completely. Be with us as we part now. We give you thanks in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.